0: Hey, this is Diedrich Bader uh, from Phoenix, Oregon, and you are listening to Inside Your Head.
1: And I never asked to grow up, so please don't make me do it. I wasn't meant to grow up, don't think I'll make it through it. Things have been going south since I hit puberty. It looks like growing up is just too much for me.
0: Welcome to Inside Your Head, this is Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by award-winning writer, director, producer, Semi Chellis, with her new film, American Woman, and it's very cool to talk with you.
2: I'm so excited to be here, virtually yeah.
0: here. Virtually, exactly.
2: virtually
0: here. <laughs> right. So for uh, people uh, who uh, don't know about the movie yet, uh, can you explain to them what American Woman is?
2: So it's inspired by true events in the 1970s, a bunch of radicals kidnapped a very rich, very famous young woman and converted her to their cause. What a lot of people don't know is that her story was intertwined with this other woman who um, was an Asian-American activist against the Vietnam War and had gone underground after she um, blew up a draft office in protest of the draft. So these two women ended up sort of coming together and going on the run, and um, and uh, it's and the writer Susan Choi wrote a novel about their lost year together. Um, so American Woman is an adaptation of that. Mm-hmm.
0: So I assume you read the uh, the novel first before you wrote the script, the screenplay. pretty.
2: So Susan Susan Choi is an old friend of mine, and um, she was actually writing the novel and sending me chunks of it. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was reading it as she wrote. So, um, you know, so it was changing around and she would call me sometimes and be like, Oh my God, I, you know, I just found out the most amazing thing or can you read this little part? This is many, many years ago. And um, the whole time I was reading it, I was like, Oh my God, this is an amazing movie. It's so cinematic. It's just like all my favorite, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, Thelma and Louise, Badlands, but it's sort of, American outlaw road movies
1: right.
2: is my favorite genre. And I was like, I kept saying to her, oh my God, is going give me a huge movie? Somebody's going to snap this up. And, um, and then the book came out, and it wasn't that long after September 11th. And there just wasn't an appetite for that story at the right, time.
1: Yeah.
2: And, um, and so at some point I was like, well, let me take a swing at it, because I just, I just know what this movie is, and it's, I, I would love to do it. So um, it took me almost 10 years to get it made.
0: But. Yeah. And this is your first, um, feature that you've directed.
2: Yeah. As a director. Yeah.
0: Right. So, um, so you, so you kind of, were you writing the script at that time or just, or kind of thinking of it in your head? Like, uh, this would make a good
2: I, movie. You know, it's interesting. I wrote a draft, um, of the script, you know, way back right after I optioned the novel, And then I kind of sat on it, and a few years later, I did another version of it, sat for a while, did other things, came back to it, and wrote another version of it. And um, it really evolved over those times. And it sort of evolved along with my sense of what that story was. Because, you know, the famous kidnapping of Patty Hearst, at the time, really, like, uh, people really saw it as, like, oh, she was just, like, you know, poor little rich girl who got liberated by these badasses and, um, you know, she loved it and she was when she was finally found um, by the FBI. She was actually prosecuted for the crimes that she committed and there was no sense of like, you know, oh, she was brainwashed or she was traumatized. That really wasn't part of the narrative and then, you know, it's, it's a very different story, I think, when you look at it through the lens of right now um, and, I, and that was part of my sort of evolving understanding um, of this story and I sort of put that in the head of the the main character so the central character of the movie is this woman Jenny who's this Asian American woman who's been underground for a couple years and she's kind of great at being you know in hiding and she sort of lands with this heiress in her lap and um, and I think her sort of journey of understanding her trails mine over the course of the writing,
0: mm-hmm. now, um, like you said, this is a, a fictionalized version of the true events—historical fiction, I guess you call it. Uh, but was a, is the Jenny character? Is that based on a real person too?
2: Yeah, she is. It's 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 quite an incredible story, and not that much is known about the person who. Um, so, when when Patricia Hirsch was finally arrested, uh, she was with this woman, and um, but because the woman wasn't one of her kidnappers. Nothing really went on the record in the subsequent trials um about their time together. So it's a little bit of a blank in that much told story, and that's where the novelist uh, Susan Joy sort of started from like what mm-hmm. you know what's this missing story about these two women? but it's all founded in historical. So uh, so, how involved
0: was Susan um, when you were writing the script? Because did, did, she she was sending you bits when she was writing her book. Did you send her stuff while you were writing the script?
2: Um, she didn't read it for many of the years that I was working on it just because, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, we, we were in touch about other things as well. But um, finally, we were on vacation together a few years ago. And she sat out by the pool. <laughs> I, I'll never forget this picture of her. She sat out in her bathing suit by the pool and read the entire script. And she was so lovely about it. She really felt like it had captured something. It's the first time she's had a movie made of her work. She um she just won the National Book Award this year for her novel trust exercise. Um, But it was the first time she'd been adapted. and And she really liked it. And she was really excited for what I would bring to it or what I'd seen in her book and she's super supportive and she showed up on set and was just amazing just like had a blast
0: yeah that's very cool so um how about when you're casting the Jenny character was uh what made uh, Hong Chao like a right right for that role for you
2: oh my goodness it was I feel like I got so lucky because somehow she got the script um when I just started casting and um And her, you know, her representatives called me and said, you should really meet her. And I had, I hadn't seen her. I guess I had seen her in um, Treme. Um, But uh, I said, oh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know her work or whatever. And then the next thing Alexander Payne emailed me and said, would you like to see a cut of downsizing, which is the movie he was just making. He was like, she's incredible. You would be so lucky to have her come see my movie so I can prove it it was just incredible and the producer of the movie like arranged for me to go to a screening before it was done and I first of all I was like, All these people are just like, she's so amazing. And then I saw the movie and I was blown away. Um so then I had a meeting with her and we met for a drink and we ended up talking for like three hours. And um and it was this incredible experience, the first of many when I was the movie where I was like, how does she know more about my script than I know about it? (laughs) She somehow like came to that meeting and she had so much insight into her character from pages that I had written that I almost couldn't fathom it. She's such a intelligent and intuitive actress. And she just understood that character like to her core. And I mean, I left that meeting and I knew it was her and I, and I knew it would be her. Mm-hmm. No matter what.
0: Yeah. yeah. So what were, uh you know? The, obviously, she, she took the role seriously and then got into it and stuff. So what was she like to to direct then?
2: Um. Really interestingly, like we talked a lot about the role, and then she told me, you know, she had worked before me. She had worked with so Paul Thomas Anderson and Alexander Payne. Right. I think were the two movies that she had done. So. I, I would be like, what did they do? <laughs> how, how did they do it? Um, <laughs> uh-huh. She said one thing that I really loved, which is she loved to play. And then she was like, you know, when we roll the camera, let's, you know, I'll try to get what you're looking for. I'll kind of give you what I thought of, but then let's play with it. And we really worked that way where we would try things really differently in different ways. And often at the end of like a few takes when I felt like I had it, we would just go one more and see where it took us, which I loved to work that way. It was really kept everything very, very alive and very fluid. And, um, and, and, you know, when it came to editing, there was lots of places where I was like, it was hard to decide because the scenes had kind of a different meaning depending on which performance I went with. Um, and that was, that was really a huge piece of growth for me as a director. And as a writer, actually,
0: did you uh, did you do your own editing, or were you you know just present for the editing to pick you know which uh, which uh, takes you liked?
2: Yeah, no, I worked with the editors and a couple of different editors, and very closely, um I was there for you know all the editing. Um, but I also, as with the acting, as with many of the aspects of the filmmaking, I quickly realized that you know my role was to squeeze and wring all the talent out of the people I was collaborating with (laughs)
1: Uh um
2: and you know I I I felt like it became my job to say this is what I want to be this is what I really like this is what I want it to mean and let them find the ways to execute that um rather than trying to micromanage it yeah as
0: your time as a producer on other projects of you know, huge stuff, people don't know, like Ma- uh, mad men. Um, did, did any of the people you worked on f- with this movie, were there people you met from other projects?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I shot it in Canada and I started my career in Canada before mad men. And before all of my, um, Los Angeles stuff, I um I had done, I had written some indie movies in Canada and, and I had had a television show there a long time ago. And, but I hadn't worked there for maybe 15 years when I went back to shoot the movie. So it was really delightfully. So I, um, I collaborated with a lot of people that I had known, you know, 15 years earlier or had worked with a lot of people who were more junior when I worked with them, as mm-hmm. was I back in the day. And then now we sort of came to it in different positions with new experience. And then I also worked with some really new people. I think that my costume designers, for instance, they'd only done one other movie and, um, they, You know, so they were, they were very, they were brilliantly new and they just really killed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
0: this might be a silly question, but for, I think some people don't really know, what is like the role of a producer?
2: Um, Well, it's interesting in television, which is where I've mostly produced, it's, um, you know, it's often paired with the writing. So on, on shows like Mad Men or whatever, I was in the writing room and on Mad Men, I was, uh, I ran the room for the last couple of seasons um and producing in that capacity means that you do you know on a creative level and occasionally on a budget level or whatever but you just continue to make sure that the vision that's coming out of the writing is executed by all the departments um often as as a writer on a show you end up working closely with the director of that episode in prep and on set because the director's for something like that and then the directors are coming in and out while the writing, the writers and the showrunner remain in place. So, you know, it, it, it's another uh, aspect of the job of just shepherding the creative vision that you're creating through the writing in, in the script
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, Sounds like all of that I obviously helped when you're uh, directing your first feature.
2: So much. I mean, that and, I had made a number of short films, you know, at different budget levels, including like none, zero and and nicely funded through arts grants. Um, and so that experience of having taken something from script and through, you know, pre-production and all the way through a sound mix um, was invaluable as a director, because I mean, one of the main lessons I learned, as I said, and. Is that is that you have to get out of people's way if you can really communicate through your script but also through your um, through engagement and conversations and leadership if you can if you can, can kind of communicate what the movie's supposed to be and you've picked the right people your job becomes to like let them do their thing and make sure they stay on track. Um, it's funny somebody told me. A metaphor of parenting is like you're in the riverbank, but you're not the water. And I always thought that was so much how I experienced directing. <laughs>
0: Interesting. it's yeah.
2: like the story is the riverbank, but like you have to let everything wash through it, and you just start wending the way.
1: Uh
0: uh-huh. huh. I like that. When you did the uh, the shorts, how does um, how does that prepare you for you know a feature? And how does the feature you know, differ besides obviously the length of the feature?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, like the length is everything because it's sort of keeping your eye on the big picture and getting up every morning and doing it with the same focus and commitment, um, but which is also a skill that you get in TV, you know, when you're doing a whole season of TV, you have to kind of not sweat the small stuff, you know, like a shot doesn't work that you had a great idea for, well, knock it down and put up another shot or like a scene's not working, fix it and keep going. Because you can't let one little thing wire you down. And I feel like that was, you know, that was the big difference was like the it's a marathon, not a sprint, of um of making a feature with my shorts. There was a kind of like fun um sense that everyone was doing the marathon play that I wanted to bring into doing my feature. And for the most part I think we got like why not enjoy it? You know, it's labor and it's hard, but it's also one of the best jobs in the world with some of the most interesting people that you could be alongside of.
0: Mm-hmm. So, did when you had the shorts out, did you uh, take those to festivals?
2: Yes, that's my favorite part of the whole process is going to festivals. And in fact, I I was just at the American Women displayed at the Female Eye Film Festival. And it was the last. I flew home from that into self isolation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah, like sure. I feel uh-huh. like being being at film festivals and and getting to show your work with a really like you know cinephile dedicated audience and meeting other filmmakers and um meeting the people who put on film festivals and spend their lives making them. That's just my favorite thing and my favorite people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I really had the. I feel like I had the great gift of getting to go to a whole bunch of great film festivals with my shorts and then revisiting them with American Woman mm-hmm. and feeling that kind of, like, we had a gala at TIFF last year, we premiered at Tribeca just a year ago, uh, actually a year ago right now, and um, just to feel that kind of sense of, of continuity in your work, and you meet the same people, you meet people who had shorts, who now have features, when you're at, when you have a short in film festival circuit, you end up meeting the same filmmakers as you hop from festival to festival, and there's like some lovely kind of community in that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I agree 100. But I had a short film in the in the festivals uh, last year, my first thing I made, and it was gonna play last week at Boston Underground Film Festival. Uh, uh, it canceled last minute. And it was very sad because that's the first festival I ever went to, just that you know, it was a uh, as press or view or anything. And I was looking forward to having it play. Just like you said, you meet the same people every year, and it's a community. Yeah. And, and uh, but hopefully, it's uh, postponed for later in the year.
2: I know. Hopefully, all that stuff will come roaring back. I, I, it really is such a, um, unreplaceable experience to be in a place and to be, in the middle of a film festival, seeing movies. And the mm-hmm. way you like schedule yourself at a film festival where you see movies you might never otherwise catch, and that's like yeah, exactly. whatever. Right. There's something so great about that experience. There.
0: Yeah, I, I, just like you said, I love it personally. Uh, you get to see stuff maybe like a year before it might pop up on a a, a streaming uh, site, yeah. or maybe you never even stuff like you you like like well, this will definitely go somewhere, but it does, just doesn't for whatever reason doesn't get its distribution. But you saw it. And, like you said, uh, meeting yeah. everybody is a big thing because, like I said, I went there as press and then I met people who made movies and they liked me and we made a small movie. And then uh, the short last That's year that so we great. made, yeah, actually made a feature here. But I don't know when that will ever be released or anything. But, but hopefully it's at some point done.
2: Is it shot, though? Your yes, is it, it is finished? actually
0: shot. Yeah, it's, it's being yeah. edited right now. Great. I'm hearing all
2: kinds of crazy stories. It's such a, it's such a, a wrenching time on so many levels. But I'm hearing so many stories of people who are like, "You have one more day of shooting, and then you have to wrap, no matter where you are in right. your season, in your in your movie or whatever." And and all this kind of creativity. I feel like there should be a film festival of people who had to hastily finish their movie in twenty four hours before, <laughs> the <end of> <laughs> before right. they went into quarantine. All right,
0: I like, I like that idea, but yeah. <laughs> So, what well, what are you doing now during during quarantine?
2: Well, I am. Um, I'm again. I feel so lucky that I'm in development on a, I'm on a mini series for HBO, and um, uh, it's going to be directed by Jay Roach. And we were doing a room with a number of fantastic writers, and we were about halfway through. we would just all gone to draft, and um, so we're zooming our room and writing our drafts, and, you know, I have little kids at home, so (laughs) I'm Zooming their school and just trying (laughs) to keep it all together, but I just feel incredibly privileged to still have a job, obviously, but also to be working on something that's really meaningful to me in this crisis. It really makes you sort of recheck that you're you're doing something that you really feel like matters in the world, and um, that's certainly this project, so...
0: How how has like the rise in uh, well HBO's been around obviously for a long time, but how has like the rise in the in the streaming platforms uh affected your career?
2: Um, you know, it in it, it, in a great way, it means that there's so many more opportunities for shows. Um, you know, it means that it's h- much harder to be in that. Well, it's always been hard to be in that position of being the show that everyone was talking about. It was mm-hmm. such a privilege on Mad Men to be in the center of that and really feel like you're doing a show that touched so many people. And, and, and that becomes harder. But on the, on the flip side, you find your freaks, right? It's right. like the people who are going to love your show like, get around it. And, and there's just so much more opportunity for, for sort of branching out with streaming. The other thing that's really interesting to me about streaming is a model that means you're supposed to go to the next episode right away, which mm-hmm. I, you know, I came up in TV where it was supposed to hold you for a week, which is a really right. different form. If you think right. about
0: it, right? It, it, yeah. I agree a hundred percent as opposed to something like you to watch in a binge watch, as opposed to uh, keep you anticipated yeah. till the next, uh, you know, I got to tune in next week.
2: Yeah. I mean, I find myself, I have a bad and now old fashioned habit of, of, Tying things up at the end of an episode, and that's the opposite of what you need to do to keep people like during the countdown to like it automatically starts playing on that,
1: <laughs> right? Right, um, yeah.
2: So, so that's been a big a creative change, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's something about that because I, I mean, I love uh, that's actually how I watched a lot of because uh, I got into Mad Men later, and then I binge watch, you know, like uh, multiple seasons of it, and then actually caught up the last couple seasons when it was on. But, uh, so, th- so that's great, but there is something about when you are watching a show live, and you have to wait a week per episode, I think you, uh, appreciate it more.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Mad we made it to be, like, chewed over for a week, right? And, and you know, my the last show that I watched like that was Game of Thrones, where I couldn't wait and yeah. save them up and I had to watch them on the night that they were on uh-huh.
0: so it I wouldn't get well.
2: spoiled yeah. too.
0: Oh, you know? <laughs> well, that's a big uh, thing. Yeah.
2: And exactly. And it's like, so then you're like making them to stay with you and, and it's just satisfying to like, you know, talk about it and wonder what's going to happen next. And, and you lose that with binging. I mean, the good thing is, it's so funny because I'm reading Charles Dickens to my daughter and mm-hmm. of course he was writing trying to get you to buy tomorrow's newspaper and read the next installment. And I thought, Oh, I could really take a lesson from this in, you know, how to get, how to keep someone waiting for the next episode as, mm. as the little clock kicks down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely pluses because, uh, probably a lot of series, like you just, people would just before, like when I was a kid, like if you missed the show when it was on, you probably just didn't see it unless it happened yeah. to be in reruns or something. Uh, but yeah. now, like, if you do miss a show, uh, even seasons later, you could you could go back and watch them all. And so there's a lot of stuff that I probably just would have not been able to see otherwise.
2: Oh, I I totally agree. It's like the, w- when I was little, if you, like, miss Bionic Woman,
1: right. you miss
2: it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you were, like, out of the cultural conversation for a whole week <laughs> <laughs> right. until yes, you got exactly. caught up on the next one. Even yeah. movies, like, I was also thinking about when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, I saw it maybe twelve or fifteen times in the theater
1: uh-huh. because
2: you couldn't bring it home, and I just kept going back to the theater and yeah. lining up and watching it. And mm-hmm. um, and you don't have that experience anymore now. Yeah,
0: it's very of the very rarity rare. of it. Yeah, very rare when I go see a movie more than once. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's a good point. I remember when I was a kid I went to the drive. My mom, maybe my mom, take me to drive in multiple times to see E.T. and then I think. Oh, yeah. Probably *Raise the Last Ark* would be up there too. That's one of my favorites. So,
2: yeah, we must be exactly the same generation. <laughs> I was yeah. like *E.T.* was like, I remember seeing *E.T.*, and it, it was just one of those weird moments where at the end, I was like, "Wait, a woman wrote that?" And it blew oh, wow. my mind. Yeah. like I couldn't believe that a woman wrote a movie, just because mm-hmm. it had just hadn't occurred to my little brain, my little girl brain. And it really, and then later I found out that she was married to Harrison Ford, so it all ties <laughs> together. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> screenwriting! Were you like write movies that good and marry Harrison Ford?" It seemed like the the best career in the world.
0: Yeah. Well, along those lines, like, when did you did, like? When was that something you wanted to pursue to to be a writer and write for either television or movies?
2: Oh, it's funny that yes. I mean I. I always wrote like from when I was little, little little I was always like, I wanna be a writer. Um but I in high school and in college I did a lot of theater and plays and um and then a friend of mine uh who from high school became a director and he was at film school and he said, Hey, will you write me a short film for my thesis project? So I wrote a little script and um sent it to him and he's a very talented director. And um, he later uh, co-created Orphan Black, the scene of the show, Orphan Black. Oh, yeah. So, and he, so he directed this little short that I had written. And um, when I saw it, I was like, what? That was, it was magical, right? It just like had come alive and come off the page and it was so exciting to me. And that's sort of where I started. So then I wrote a script and I, I ended up going to um, a film, the film center in Canada and, mm-hmm studying for like a year program and then I came out of that and I just sort of started working and and writing and you know when I started out I wasn't sure what medium I wanted to be in but it was right at the time when there was big disruptions where you could work in film and television which didn't used to be a thing right it used to be uh-huh. one or the other uh-huh. but um I was lucky enough to like slide around and and I be able to do short films and Um, and play around a lot in my writing. And I also did some journalism and still wrote fiction for a while. Um, And then it just, I I just sort of clicked into this moment in television where it became so writing driven and the writing became so uh, exciting and inspiring on that medium. So still like very lucky.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, I, I'm you know, mentioned the show. But I think the last twenty years or so is like really a golden age for television. Kinda of like you know, once like uh, the wire and HBO started and then from there it was like all these this great series on uh you know, on yeah. on, on, on pay cable and, and basic cable and stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean it it it's you know, if you dig down a lot of those showrunners have their roots in other great other kinds of great television, like I always in Blown away by the idea that David Chase who did The Sopranos like worked on The Rockford Files which was like you know which was like one of those old sort of 60s, 70s shows it's
1: yeah.
2: that actually really kind of interesting and compelling when you go back <laughs> to it because they had to make hundreds and hundreds of episodes of that thing you know um, and find a way to sort of do the same but different and
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: Vince Gilligan was on X-Files, which is another great show before that golden age, but certainly there came a moment where I think cable and options allowed like writing to really flourish and voices to really be heard. Mm-hmm. And there's
0: not, there aren't too many, you mentioned like X-Files, Rock, Rockford Files, there's not too many uh, episodes, like, I don't know what the word is, it episodic shows where it's like one, yeah. each, each show is just, it's contained, you know, story. Uh, now we really have, you know, either ongoing story arcs throughout the whole series or each season, like uh, American Horror Story is one big story arc, and then it restarts in the next season, and then it was, you know, a different story.
1: Right. Well,
2: and I think that, I think that partly came with cable, because people, because, you know, HBO wants you to subscribe to HBO, so you can't just sample something. You've got to be in for the whole thing, yeah. you know, And and that's so different from when we all had, like, you know, networks for free, and you could just watch a line order and then like watch another one in a month mm-hmm. and it didn't totally matter, you know? Um, so, so I think that shift like made it shifted. I mean, this is my big theory of everything, but it sort of shifted episodic series into the realm of the novel. And, you know, the, I feel like there you came, this generation of people who in another generation might've had a novel in their drawer who suddenly mm-hmm. like whipped off a pilot <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it's been a really, it's, there's a lot of stuff to binge while you're in quarantine. Yes, there
0: is. That way. <laughs> and it's uh, weird because I I mean, I've honestly a lot of the shows for the last 20 years. I love Mad Men, Breaking Bad, all these things. But it is weird not having a show where you can just, I'm sure there are out some out there. I'm, I'm just not aware of where you can just like watch an episode. Like you couldn't watch Breaking Bad season two, episode five, just and ne- never seen no. anything before. Because you'd be like, what? I don't know what the hell is going yeah. on.
2: Or there'd be I no know. ending or anything. It's, but. it's true. It's like, it's funny because I, I, my kids, the shows my kids watch are like that. Those mm-hmm. are the shows where like, they're like, I was watching Adventure Time with them, which is a brilliant animated series that I'm sure does have an order, but it, you know, it's, it's built to be able to be watched here and there and it's sort of ad hoc. Mm-hmm. And, and I was thinking that too, that there's not a lot of series like that. You know, I was, um, I was an EP of the Romanoffs, which I did with the creator of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner. Um, and it was sort of an anthology series with, it's got eight installments, but they're not really episodes. They don't lead to each other. They have a, um, they have a bottom line theme, which is they all are about people who rightly or wrongly believe that they were descended from the last czar of Russia who was murdered in the revolution. And sort of how that twists their lives. Um, someone called it Black Mirror for white privilege, which I thought was hilarious. But I love that kind of anthology show, like yeah. Black Mirror, I guess, or like yeah. Twilight Zone, where yeah. where there's kind of a bigger premise, and then you, but then the shows don't necessarily have a relationship to each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I like that kind of. St- yeah, there's uh, Black Mirror is definitely one that is like our modern day Twilight Zone, and Ah, uh, there's yeah. a creep show yeah. series too on Shudder, which, which I like.
2: Yeah, my cool. kids got something called Creeped Out that they absolutely love, which is like Black Mirror for kids. Which
1: oh, really? You know, by the
2: way, I know the worst things get out in the world, the more they want to like watch this creep show on TV. So, go figure.
0: So, back to your your, i sorry, Back to Future for a minute. Uh, American Woman, is um yeah, when you're at the fe- for the people I've seen it so far. Um, I guess at the festivals, this wouldn't be probably so much because of the audience that I think go to festivals, but is there any like, uh, uh, uh people who might, cause the protagonist can be, can be, someone could describe it, her as a, as a terrorist. So are there people who, uh, you know, who, who don't take to the movie, uh, is, is there a divisiveness, I guess, in the audience?
2: Well, it's interesting because I, I wanted the movie to be provocative in that way, mm-hmm. right? It's like right. it's like the, the question that I always say that I started with is how do you change minds, right? And Which is kind of a joke because one way to change a mind is to kidnap someone at machine gun point and hold them in a closet for six weeks <laughs> until you own their mind, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe not the best way. Right. And I think the... The central character Jenny, her way of changing minds was to try to do these, um, you know, non-violent in her mind, complete acts of violence, right? Her, her method of protesting is to do things so huge and frightening and violent to get bad attention, but that's playing with fire. And I think part of her, her journey in the movie is to really question that, but, mm-hmm. but to ask herself... And as, as I think we all ask ourselves, like, how do you make yourself heard and how do you change what isn't working and, and how do you have a voice? And I think that the movie really raises that question for people. And so it is divisive in some ways because people like to argue about, you know, those questions and even just about, you know, did, was she truly brainwashed, was she did the character's called Pauline in the movie, and did she throw her lot in with them? Did she, was she a convert to their cause? Is that possible in such a violent you know, beginning? And I really embraced that, because I really wanted people to come out of that movie arguing about that. And, you know, it's a very pertinent question.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, in the world right now, it's like, how do we change each other's minds, right? Maybe it starts not with making a...
1: Oh,
2: I'm getting sued by a huge police helicopter. And, oh, okay. You know, maybe, maybe <laughs> a bit they're of my, watching you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe the, if you want to change minds, how do you do it? It's definitely not by yelling at uh-huh. people. And uh, so much of what goes on right now is that people are just like shouting each other down. You know.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um. But uh. But. But how does change happen? And I, I feel like. It's such a funny thing because the movie is set in 1974. It's about mm-hmm. a very different time, but I think that question is so relevant
1: oh, right yeah. now.
0: Yeah. I even have that in my in <laughs> my notes here. It's very relevant today in topic.
2: Yeah, yeah, it it is. It's so relevant, and just even on the big picture of like, how can we fix a broken government? what is the right way? Because the wrong way is probably kidnapping heiresses at machine
1: gunpoint.
2: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, but somewhere in between there and doing nothing, there mm. is an answer. And how do we find that answer, which I feel like is the main character's question in the movie. Um, she starts very sure of herself and sure that she is sort of a martyr to good acts. And by the end, I think she really is rock and yeah. and And it's very I think it's very unusual to tell a story where the end of the story is a person is like, "Oh, I'm not sure, but uh, i I sort of think that that is where change happens when we can admit like me i'm maybe I'm willing to question some of my assumptions or some of my beliefs
1: mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: and I, that's why I mean the big thing I liked about it it doesn't uh, it doesn't hit you over the head Wait, you know, what to think about, you know, the decisions of the characters it leaves it up to you, which I, that's what I was like about movies, more like a kind of a seventies kind of movie. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, I think it humanized. If you're, if you go into the movie or someone who would totally disagree with, with the character at all, it humanizes that character, which I think is something people don't do today either, kind of humanize the people that you disagree with. You, instead of just being like, I disagree with you completely. It's like, well, you got to look at where they're coming from. And, and maybe you still don't agree, but at least you can see, you know, why they think that.
2: Very well put. Yeah.
0: Yeah. which does not happen at all on Facebook by the
2: way <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so, uh,
0: how how about uh, making a movie you know that takes place in the second I think a lot of people think about you know yeah we have to find the red, the cars and and out and the clothes and all things, but how about making sure there's nothing like modern scene like actually yeah, think, oh my God.
2: I mean, you know, it's like I mean that was obviously a challenge on Mad Men, and, and but on Mad Men we had many more resources than I did on my relatively little movie. Um, I uh, the first day, a good story about that, which is the very first day. They always start your very first day with something that's fairly easy to shoot, and there's a scene where her boss has asked Jenny for a yellow croquet ball, but only a yellow croquet ball. She doesn't want the rest of the set. So, um, Jenny buys a whole set and throws out the set, except for the one yellow one. And Uh so the easiest scene in the world, she just has to walk into a back alley and throw away a croquet set. So we arrive at dawn on the first day of shooting. And there's a giant SUV parked right in the middle of the shot, like (laughs) parked in a way that like, no matter where I put the camera, Uh the SUV is going to be in the shot. So I'm like, uh, uh, what, do, what do we do? And everyone's just standing there looking at it. And, you know, the people who are, um, whose job it is to make sure that doesn't happen were like, we were here since yesterday at noon. Nobody's come back for it. We don't know. Can we tow it? We can't tow it. So finally we got a period station wagon, parked it in front, pulled suitcases on the top, <laughs> like found a period canoe in the prop <laughs> truck and put it on the top and blocked it out or whatever. But I mean, uh-huh. it was that 100% of the time, right? It's like you get to the location, you look around, you're like, well, in that direction is an office shower, so we're not shooting in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was challenges all the way through. In some way, that's like, maybe it's a cliche to say, but that's the fun of it at some level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, how do we work around this and how are we going to tell this story and frame out, you know, 2019 and and just get our our story told. I was, yeah. I, I was partly inspired to think that I could make the movie because so much of it is on the run. So much of it, there hiding out in safe houses and in motel rooms that sort of avoiding the world. And, um, it kind of gave me license to avoid the world a little bit in my filmmaking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how, how long did it, did, did it take to actually film the movie?
2: Uh, we shot for about a month. Um, in the summer, there was a point at which the temperature climbed so high that we had to, by law, shut down. Right. <laughs> it was very hot at points, but but again, it, it really uh, was within the world of the movie. I get they supposed to be. It's supposed to be a hot, sort of languished summer to be yeah. underground.
1: Yeah.
0: No. I, I know you did the shorts before, but did you pick up like um like how to direct uh, working on other movies or other TV shows and things?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would say, um, I would say I learned so much from working as a writer by the side of so many great directors and and being included in that process and seeing. But I still learned a lot on the job, you know. Um, I I've worked with actors a lot in my life. I've worked with, you know, cinematographers and editors and and musicians and stuff, but what I really learned really quickly was, you know, how do they want to work? How do I want to work? Where can the where can the overlap come? And then how do I convey to that person in my own terms what I want this to be like and what I want this to be about and what this story means to me and how do they translate it into their terms? Um, my cinematographer, Greg Middleton, who has won a couple of awards for the movie, which makes me so happy because he was such a, Fundamental part of making it um, come to life because we really we spent months and months discussing it and talking about what it should look like and and how it should feel like and and creating a style for it and and then you know you do all that planning when it comes to the moment a lot of it goes out the window and you have to sort of improvise but you've laid the solid ground mm-hmm. to improvise from um, and and I guess that was the what I, what I learned was to over prepare and then be loose in the moment
0: so uh, w- when it was finished, then you did go to the festivals um, Now yeah you, you went to festivals before and we talked about them with the shorts, but how much of a different experience was it you know watching your feature with a with an audience as
2: opposed to a short? Well, it's uh, both of them are both like delightful and super painful. I would the uh-huh. feature much more than the short. I, sh- I made a bunch of people watch it before we lost, right? So uh-huh. I took whatever opportunities I could to screen it for people, show it to people, make people come in the editing suite and watch it, make people watch it on my laptop. Um, at some point I was working out of my um, agency and I realized they had a screening room and I was like, oh, I'm just going to screen it every night <laughs> for whoever will show up and get in their notes and get their thoughts. So by the time it was done. I can basically recite that movie in real time. Like I can uh-huh. do every sound effect. <laughs> so at that point, there's some kind of like amazing piece and just like letting it flow and playing it for the audience and different audiences are very different. Um,
1: mm-hmm. You
2: know, I, we played at Ray Johnson hall at Toronto, which is a huge venue. I think like thousands of people and watching it in front of that audience was one amazing experience watching it at some of the smaller film festivals I've gone where you had like a packed room and there's only 99 people um, is a different kind of intimate experience. And, and interestingly enough, the movie rewards both. I think it's because it's, because it's got such a kind of intimacy to the um, situation that the characters are in. I really Mm -hmm. loved the smaller audiences, like the, you know, the, the, that leaning in, but Mm -hmm. it's also, it's also got a kind of sweep, in places where showing it on a huge screen to a giant audience with the most amazing sound is like just the thrill of a lifetime, you know, it's like yeah. that's when you're sitting there going, "I just got to do this again and again and again." <laughs> uh
0: huh. <laughs> do you know where where uh, American Woman goes from here? You know, since the festivals probably aren't uh, well, happening for
2: a while. No, I was gonna say it's just an opening in theaters, uh-huh. um, but uh, I'm guessing that all of that is disrupted, um. Mm. So uh, it was supposed to open this spring in theaters in Canada and and um, uh, and in the United you know, States in selected theaters, but at this point, I think no one's quite sure what will happen. Um, I hope, you know, I hope that it will stream soon ish so that people can see it. You know, because again, I feel like it's super timely and and. I would like to get it out there in this moment that we're in now, even if that meant the sort of sadness is bypassing more people getting to see it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're all just figuring out what this moment is and how long it lasts and, mm-hmm. and, um, what, and are, that, what the future looks like.
0: Yeah. A lot of the movies are exper- like, uh, some big movies where you can watch them in, in line and, uh, we're at home. And uh, even some uh, independent stuff is like uh, you know experimenting with the idea of like you kind of buy a movie ticket and then you watch it at home and you know just people are trying different things. This, you, like you said, this is a this is a unique uh, situation. So no one really knows yeah. you know you know what to do, do or what it will mean in the, in the if, big picture if that takes off. Maybe that's what that's how I movies are, are put and out in the future. I don't know.
2: Selfishly, as someone with little kids for whom it's harder to go to the theater. Like I was super psyched to see that um, a portrait of a lady on fire is streaming as of tonight, which is much earlier than they meant to put it on, but yeah. I'm down. So, I mean, it, you know, there, that has always been the great thing of, of streaming and VOD is mm-hmm. the kind of long tail where people can ac- access movies that might have a small audience, but it's like that audience will love them, you know? And and I always feel like that with the American woman that I wanted to have a huge audience, but there's some people for whom it's so personal. There's Mm -hmm. at every screening there's someone who comes up to me afterwards in tears and and sort of you know, because they saw themselves reflected in the movie or because it spoke to them in some certain way. And I just wanna reach all those possible people. Yeah. Um, Of course. So I hope it'll get out there one way or another.
0: Yeah. And uh, so you you mentioned you know watching with the audience and it makes you feel like this is something I want to keep doing. So uh, that when things are are more normal, I guess uh, is that what you want to do? Uh, do more um, directing?
2: Uh, yes, I definitely would. I I would love to direct some television, which is like a quite a different kind of mm-hmm. directing. But I really want to make another movie, and on um you know right now I just want to make I want to things to be makeable again. <laughs>
1: Yes, but, um, yeah
2: But I sure hope that I get the I get the chance to direct another movie and and um and work in that medium. I right? I would love to direct a movie that's not period where it doesn't matter if an SUV parked in your shop. Right. Right. That would be my
0: uh, would be ideal. Uh, yeah. Then you'll make sure there's an SUV in a shot. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, give me the more free SUVs. I know. I I was like the next movie I make. You know, we had. It was a. It was like on Mad Men. The one thing that I knew to be wary of was the car that doesn't start. You get these beautiful cars that are these incredible antiques, but in the movie they're supposed to be just somebody's New. car. You know? Right, right, yeah. And and they, you know, you they mostly start, but then you get when or the, you know, there's one car in my movie that doesn't start and it's actually like pushed into frame and crosses frame <laughs> and it was pushed by human hands. <laughs> <laughs> And and there was like we they, they did that and then they panned the light across in the reverse angle. They like brought the light around so it looks like the car's glinting off the face. Like it it's magic to me that it looks uh-huh. like that car went because it was dead as a doornail on set. So
1: uh-huh.
2: yeah. I love that. Yeah.
0: And I assume every time yeah. you see that, like uh you know that that's how the shot was was done. So like you you, you yeah. know that when watching so it. So I see it, like, it, but
2: it looks like magic on screen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that'd be just like if you had. And an I want to do. it. And, 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 and your next movie would be like you know why it's there, and no everyone else would be like. Yeah. Exactly,
2: I have like that. My my logo would be big SUV in the middle. <laughs> right. Um, there well, I, but then the other thing I want to do a podcast. There's some okay. cool things happening in podcasts. There, there. are. There
0: are. Yes, um, I've been doing it since 2005. So. You know, wow. I, I don't think it was even a term at the time.
2: No, that's amazing. That's amazing. How did you get
0: into it? Um, well the first podcast we did was a professional wrestling podcast. It was just a friend of mine on the internet and um just said, Hey, let's wow. he did all the technical stuff, so I, I didn't know what I was doing. And then uh, <laughs> And then uh, from there, I did uh, uh, mostly a horror movie podcast, and now I just—why well, do I still do that? But it's—I uh, also do this now, where it's tight because I just like movies in general, like the horror. But uh, yeah, it's been, a, been,
2: so cool. it's
0: been a lot of fun. If I especially I look back and all the people you know that's been on, and and it's also been a lot of like cool experiences from 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 doing the the podcast, the festivals. I bet. And how, and now starting to, to do some movie stuff. It's uh, been a really, been a really fun time. Big part of my uh, when I started, I was in my late twenties, and now uh, I'm in my forties, so it's kind of that's, that's a little disheartening. <laughs> that look back, but yeah, yeah. back.
2: Right. <laughs> I think that was around the time that I started trying to make American women, If it makes you feel better. <laughs> All right. Fair, fair. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, like, I was a child.
0: <laughs> right, I'll joke sometimes, and I'll tell people, I'll say that you know, it's the twenties when I started, and, and I was like, man, I really wasted my life. And, but I, I'm always <laughs> joking. I say sometimes people yeah. <laughs> take it seriously. Yeah, That's hilarious.
2: It's no, hilarious. So- I mean, it's really it's it's interesting to see like scripted podcasts. Starting to be a yeah, cool thing, cause,
0: and yeah, because it's yeah. almost like the old school. Like, uh, I mean, it's way before my day, but like the old. Like, I like to listen to it, like the old, you know, like radio plays. Oh, from, yeah.
1: like, the-
2: Absolutely, you know, I worked with um, i we had some older writers in the room sometime, and one of them was um, Frank Pearson, who wrote like Dog Day Afternoon and some of the great movies of the 70s. But before that, he was in television, and just when television was sort of starting in the 50s, and and they would just take old radio shows, like Have Gun With Travel was like a radio show, and they just took them and filmed them, you know, (laughs) because they needed scripts, 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 and and they were just in that early days, and I do think that television has so much in common with those old radio programs. I was brought up, I'm also before my time, but my parents used to have um, tapes of some of the old, you know, the shadow, and... Yeah, yeah. Sergeant Preston and those old radio dramas and I love them and I kinda of grew up on that and I, yeah. I love the idea that they're reemerging as scripting podcasts.
0: Yeah, I like that too. Who knows what uh shadow what is it? Who knows what evil works in the heart of man? The Shadow knows <laughs> I say
2: the Shadow knows.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, It's fun. And uh you yeah. can find some of that stuff too, like online, like on YouTube or like uh yeah. arc, I think like archive.org whatever it is, we'll have a lot of uh, I like some of the old like Vincent Price stuff and uh, he'll read like a lot of the old horror stuff. It's, it's fun to listen to. That's so funny. Do you
2: have to tell me why why your nickname
0: is Nasty Neal? Nasty Neal. It was actually <laughs> given to me. Some of my friends, uh, uh, my friend Trista currently, she doesn't like it because she's like, you're not you're not nasty, so don't call yourself. The tree suggested I call I myself know. a friendly creep, and I was like, "Well, I'm not nasty, but I'm a creep." She said, "Yeah, but but you're a friendly one." I was like, "Oh, I guess that's okay." I don't know, but uh, <laughs> uh, I guess uh, Ari Mahajlov, who played Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Three, named me Nasty Neo on the podcast, and I was like, "I don't think it sounds cool," so I just I just went with it. I wish I had a better spot. The hilarious. Yes. Yeah.
2: That's pretty good, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All the way to your nickname yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, it is. That, and
0: that where is are good.
2: where are you? Where are you actually broadcasting from? Or I'm in Massachusetts.
0: Yeah, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm in Cape Cape Cod. I don't know if you know where that is, but
2: uh, yeah, Chris. Cool. Are you in Canada currently? Yeah. No, I'm in Los Angeles. Right. Sorry, that's, right. that's where I live now.
0: Okay. I was in I was in LA in uh, December when we did our our, uh, our feature film. So that was my first feature film. That was very exciting. That's
2: very exciting. With the codes.
0: Uh that one's a secret, so I can't say. Oh but, but I could tell, oh. I could email you or whatever off air. But and then <laughs> we did a, a, or a second one in February, which we just got uh done right before things started to uh to get bad. So but that one is All the right. once and future smash, which is a mockumentary about uh, two actors who take credit for a 1970 slasher film, and then they're at a convention <laughs> together for the first time, which is, r- is <laughs> roughly inspired by, by many similar instances where people argue over who played uh, a character, especially in the horror world.
2: Oh, that's so hilarious. That's hilarious. Cool. Yeah. Uh, let's right.
0: it. All right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. So where
2: could people... Uh, actually, are any of your shorts online for people to watch? Um, I think the only one that's online is the one that literally is a no-budget um, short called One Tomato that we um, we shot in one day, and it was an experiment in um, seeing if we could tell a story with only one person in it. Um, uh, that might be online. I don't know if the other shorts are online. Um, I'd say binge-watch the Romanoffs if you're
0: uh, yeah, oh, I've actually been wanting to see that, and I'm also looking forward to a So I went to see Snowpiercer the movie when it oh, went yeah. out years ago. So
2: they, I think that they just skidded in and wrapped their second season right before the quarantine. So oh, really? Um, hopefully they'll put it up soon because they got they're sitting on the whole finished season, and it's going to be a great one. Huh. I'm very excited for very that. Good.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, now that I think about it, I went to see Snow Pierce of my friend, Annabelle, and she also didn't like the name Nasty Neil. I like it because <laughs> I think I like alliteration, I guess, but I think it's a cool name. But she suggested okay. Sweet Neal, and I was like, that's nice of you, oh. but like it doesn't, it's not a very good name for, for a podcast. This is <laughs> it doesn't name. get the asses in the
2: seats, man. <laughs> it's not,
0: exactly. It's off the tongue, and people aren't like, oh, I don't want to listen to that guy, Sweet Neal, who... The hell, who the hell's that dude? But yeah, it's nice, everything.
2: I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> and wh- well, where can people follow American Woman or yourself, you know, to see what uh, where it goes?
2: Um, we're American women Film too on Twitter because, hilariously, there's another American film, oh, you okay. film out there. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm sent me for instance on Instagram. I um, will post news when there is news. Right now it's all the sad oh, yeah. looking back at the <laughs> exciting film festival circuit that screechingly hasn't much stuff. <laughs> yeah. But um but uh we had we did have some great audiences up until then, so feel so very uh-huh. lucky.
0: Very cool. Oh, by the way, uh, I don't want to say just plug my own stuff, but the my short film that was playing uh places was Umbilicus Desidero, which is also a mo- well, I'll say a quote unquote documentary. I'll spoil it, it's a mockumentary. About the loss of my belly button. It's, uh, very ah
2: What they call umbilicus red.
0: Umbilicus desidero, which is Latin for without belly button. Without navel. <laughs>
2: That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. Amazing. Right. thank um, you. It's without navel. Fun. Yes, with, the, can't with wait. The, <laughs> all right. I also do it. Is like, it's, it's, it's online. It's not.
0: It's not. But I do have a private link that I could share with you if you want to see it.
2: Oh, fabulous!
0: And it's very. It's short. So you, So you You know. You won't be in too much. Uh, you won't waste too much of your time if you don't like it. <laughs> <But>.
2: That's the <laughs> great thing about shorts.
0: it is that I do think uh, because shorts seems like at the festivals there's definitely a rise of popularity in them and I do think a lot of it is that like if you don't like it you don't have to sit there for an hour and a half or or two hours I know there's (laughs) nothing I love more than uh, shorts
2: programs where they're just like where they're curated by somebody and you're always like what is the what is the you know connective tissue between these different shorts and I love like seeing a program of six or like when you have a short and you land in a program and the other film the relationship to your film, it's like,
0: I love that. It's like a mixtape, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I always reference mixtape and then I always stop myself. I'm like, oh, you, whoever I'm talking to you probably know what the hell that is. But like, a, I like, know, <laughs> do you feed
2: you yourself yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, and then, because I always say there's like, when you put together, when you used to put together a mixtape, like, you don't just randomly do it. You want them to, you know, like ups and downs and there's some type of connection. Yeah. And, like, this song that goes Transition. better after this one, right? Yeah, yeah. And if someone really takes their, it's yeah, scary. someone takes their time to do that with the with the short program, it, it's a good, it's a very uh fun
2: experience. Yeah, the best. Yeah. So I had a. I'm feeling this feeling this terrible nostalgia for film festivals right now.
0: I know. I I really I I had thought it, but then uh, a lot of my filmmaker friends, because I'm I'm a newbie to this, but. They're like, no, don't do that. It's not a bad idea. But I thought uh, an online one would be fun, but they were like, no, you can't do that because uh then they looked down on it like if your thing played online and not in front of a, a theater with people. And I was like, oh, okay. I just thought uh, a lot of people have stuff out there maybe that you could do it somehow online, but but I was shot down in the idea. But uh, <laughs> maybe I'll do with stuff that's already up somewhere, like stuff that's already on Vimeo and YouTube. That would be cool. Yeah. Like a... A playlist, I guess, is is the modern term. Um, yeah,
2: a playlist. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Love it. I
0: have, to, I have to update my my lingo. No more mixtape. I'll say a playlist. <laughs> then the kids will know what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs>
2: it's true. I feel like podcast is like, is like this. Some Pretty soon someone's going to be like, I'm sick of looking at my own face on Zoom when I'm doing all these meetings. And they're going to be like, uh-huh. what if there was a thing where you just had sound and you just held it to your ear? <laughs> and you just uh-huh. spoke into it, and they can hear you on the other end, and just
0: going to be like, wait a second, uh-huh. is that a phone? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so when I first started doing them, some people would be like, I don't want to go, whatever, this is a podcast, or uh, I'll be on if you like on like actual radio, like local radio or something. But now it's like the reverse of that. It'd be like, like who would want to, unless you were like at a specific event, there would be, you know, very few people are going to hear you on like a local radio show, but you know, podcasts, they could be you know, worldwide. So it's really weird how that's changed over since the time I started doing the podcast.
2: Well, you were definitely an early adopter. So mm-hmm. yeah. I trust your playlist taste.
0: All right. Very good. Yeah. I, I remember too, when we started, this does have nothing to do with anything, but there were people who were on the actual radio but they were just also test, testing out with with like putting like the archive uh, shows online, and they like really would look down on us and like uh, uh, for doing for because we didn't we didn't have broadcasting degrees and stuff, and it was like uh, I was I was young and more angsty, so I'd troll them and stuff. But there was like all these wars on 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 uh, on. Uh, not it was before social media, so it was like message boards and stuff. It was like all very just stupid and foolish. <laughs> yeah. Yes. AOL. All right. The AIM. I believe. AIM. Yeah. AOL. Uh, right. Yeah. Message board. And AIM was like the the instant chat. Right. Right. All
2: right. right. So
0: Hilarious. if you ever do a yeah a mid two thousand period uh, a movie you you can uh, have it set to place in a in an AOL chat room.
2: It's funny to think that that's period, but on the other hand, probably <laughs> yeah. on the other side of coronavirus, everything will be period, right? Everything. Very that's pre coronavirus will feel really like period, even if it's set in 2019. Uh-huh. Um, so I think we're having a giant chef Like, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. We'll make everything a... chef. That's weird.
0: Yeah. I think this is in bad taste, but there uh, there's a coronavirus, it's called Corona Zombies movies coming up. And I was like, there's no and way they could have. Really? Yeah, I like, there's no way they could have. It's coming out like next week. There's like no way they could have wrote that. And like filmed it and edited it in like in like a, a few weeks. Like I assume they just had like some old movie and just shoehorned some stuff in there. But I'm not. Uh, maybe it's
2: some right movie that was not working, and then they just right. jabbered everyone's <laughs> in Corona and yeah. zombie or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. Wow. But but they
2: have stiff competition with the with the batch that right now and. Everyone's like, I'm going to revisit the classics. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> noticed. like On their own little film festival in their living room.
0: Yeah, when you go to Netflix and it lists like the top ten, it's all like uh, Outbreak and all. The, and I was like, I actually don't <laughs> I want know, to really know, Groundhog,
2: yeah. yeah. Groundhog Day. Yeah. Groundhog Day, Castaway, uh-huh. The Martian, Tales of Isolation and Repetition.
0: Uh-huh. The other side. Uh, not because it was just coincidence. I started to, because I listen to audiobooks a lot, and I started listening to The Stand because I just wanted to listen to it, but it's like 48 hours, oh, yeah. 47 hours long. So I started listening to it, and I was like, oh, this, I don't think I want to listen to this right now. It's not It's not really very <laughs> uplifting to listen to this right right at this moment. I think I'll uh, probably save that for another time.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay, but,
0: uh, yeah. Alright, so Uh, American Woman. I really enjoyed the movie, and I really enjoyed talking with you.
2: Well, it was my pleasure, Take good care.
1: All my high school friends are off in college now. And I get high and watch TV all day. Living in my mother's basement's really not that bad. I got everything I need. I don't pay, and I never asked to grow up, so please don't make me do it, I wasn't meant to grow up, don't think I'll make it through it, things have been going south since I hit puberty it looks like growing up is just too much for me. Cards and playing ball Mm -hmm. Then came high school classes That I couldn't understand But I say not now, no, not right now. When they say I need to get a life. I- me.